Father. You are God, Lord. You are in control of all things, Lord. And we gather here today to give you glory and worship for the, the wonderful work that you're doing in this world. God, in such a bizarre year, Lord, you have brought so much fruit forth, Lord. And we've seen your great faithfulness over and over from the beginning of history until now. God, you have been good. You have been gracious toward mankind, and we thank you, Lord, that you have done everything, God, for us, and above all, that you gave us your son, God, that you gave your best, and in return, Lord, we seek to give our best back to you, Father. I ask that you'd bless the giving and the generosity of Calvary Napa, God, that you would use the people here, the servants here, uh, to reach the lost for Christ, and to... Uh, minister to the saints here in Napa, and we thank you for this family, God, that you've called here uh, to be part of your body. I ask that you'd bless the teaching of your word today, Father, that it would penetrate our minds and our hearts, that we would be washed with your word, God, and it would renew our minds and our spirits. Father, we love your truth, and we thank you that you've given it to us. I ask that you'd bless Pastor Rob, Father, that you'd give him uh, great freedom and speak through him today, Lord. And I, uh, I just thank you for all that you've done this year, God, as we look back at your, uh, your great power working within us uh, to accomplish your purposes, Father. We're in awe of you, and uh, we give you praise and honor that's due to your name today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1? All right. Praise the Lord. Well, we are beginning our journey through the book of Colossians, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We did a little bit of an overview last week. We talked about the theme of the book. Can anybody remember what it is? Somebody better remember what it is. Jesus, the sufficiency of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. He's more than enough. He's all that we need. He has more than enough. That's something that I, I said over and over and over last week. And that's what we're going to find as we work through the book of Colossians, that Jesus is indeed more than enough. And today what we're going to see is that Jesus is more than enough to make our lives fruitful for God, to have fruitful lives, to live fruitfully for the Lord God. And so that's what we're going to see in our text today. And if you would follow along with me, I'd like to uh, read through the first 14 verses of chapter 1, and that's going to be our, our text today. So, picking up in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth, as you also learned from Epaphras, our fellow servant, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. 
For this reason, we also, since the day we heard, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. That is the word of the Lord. Let's pray one more time. Father God, I ask your blessing upon the teaching of your word today. God, would you open our eyes and our hearts to hear from you. Would you be glorified, God, as we seek you in your word? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've undoubtedly heard expressions like being a fruitful Christian or a fruit-filled Christian or having a fruit-filled, fruitful life. And that's because it is absolutely biblical language and it is very helpful language. We all understand what it means to be fruitful on some level. Generally, it means to be productive or pr prosperous from one degree or another. But during the times of Jesus and in that culture, people would have especially understood this concept of fruitfulness, which is why he in John chapter 15, verse 5 said, and we all know this, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. In that agrarian society, that culture, they would understand this kind of language clearly. And it's obvious to us, especially for those of us who live here in Napa, and you see the vineyards and the fruit on the vines. And, uh, and the, the point is simple, that if you're connected to Christ, He is the source of life. And any blessing that, that we might enjoy or any fruit that we might produce comes from being close to Jesus, being connected to Him. And for the Christian who, who may on some level stray away from Christ, that fruitfulness can cease. And so this is very easy to understand type language, and we see it all throughout the Bible. So let's just consider a little bit more about what the Bible says about fruitfulness. First off, typically... Fruit is the product of a healthy tree or vine or what have you. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 7 that every good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree bear good fruit. So fruit is a, a sign of health, good fruit that is. It's also an obvious indicator to the type of tree. Jesus said in that same text, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. You're going to know them by their fruits. And that the fruit is their false teaching and their lifestyle. He says, do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Obviously, they, they do not. And so that is a real indicator of the type of tree, if you will, the fruit. Also, we see that there are fruits of repentance. John the Baptist said that. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And that simply means if you have turned from sin to Christ, your life ought to look like it. There ought to be some sort of evidence to show that, to demonstrate that. There should be some fruit 
there are fruits of our attitudes and actions. We know the text well in Galatians chapter 5, the fruits of the Spirit. It says that those are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's a great book called The Practice of Godliness by Jerry Bridges, and he says that uh, he doesn't believe that to be um, a list you know, that, that's real... Um, it's, it's much more broad than that, I should say. And he says that any other trait commended in the Scriptures as befitting a believer is a fruit of the Spirit. And he adds to that holiness, humility, compassion, forbearance, contentment, thankfulness, considerateness, sincerity, perseverance. These are fruits as well. These are fruits of actions and attitudes. Well, the Bible says there are fruits of praise, Hebrews 13, 15. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to him. Offering thanks to God, being a grateful people and expressing it verbally, that is fruit. That is fruit. The Bible even says that there are fruits of unrighteousness. Romans chapter 6, verse 20, For when we were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things that you are now ashamed of? The end of those things are death. You know, when I was outside of Christ, before I knew Jesus, I had a very fruitful life, but it was rotten fruit. You know what I mean? It's stuff that I am now ashamed of. And so when you come to Christ, you can produce good fruit, healthy fruit. And that is what Christ does. Well, God is glorified through good fruit and abundant fruit. In John 15, 8, it says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so you will be my disciples. So God would have us to be a fruitful people because that brings Him much glory. And I remember the first time a dear brother told me, he said, Rob, God is much more concerned with who you are in Him than what you can do for Him. And sometimes we can get that out of balance. And God wants us to be fruitful. He wants, to, he wants our hearts. He wants to change us from the inside out. And when we bear fruit, that really glorifies God. So he's committed to that, and so is Jesus. Jesus is committed to making us continually fruitful. John 15, 16 says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should continue. So Jesus is committed to that. He's committed to the Christian having a fruitful life in him. And before we get into our text, I just wanted to talk a little bit about fruitfulness, what that looks like in our day-to-day -day lives. What does it look like to have a fruitful life in Christ for us? Well, allow me to work through this list, if I may. First and foremost, salvation is a fruit. Salvation is a fruit of the gospel, a saved life. Coming to Christ in faith, being forgiven of your sins and and changing your life, that is a fruit of believing and trusting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it starts there. A change in our thinking, when, when our old stinking thinking begins to change and we begin to think as Christ would have us think, that is a fruit of the Word of God. The Word of God does that as we immerse ourselves in it. A change in living, no longer living like we used to, but living in an entirely different way, living in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. That is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Pursuing God relationally and devotionally. That is fruit, folks. When we really pursue God, we want to know Him. 
We want to walk with him. We want to love him more and make him the center of our lives. That is fruit. Fighting sin in your life, that is fruit. You know, not sinlessness. We'll never be perfect in this life. But fighting sin, that is the fruit of being in Christ. Because before we were in Christ, did we, was there any fight in us? No, we just went for it full tilt, you know, and there was nothing to hold us back. But now there's this struggle. And may I say to you that really in a lot of ways, that's what Christianity is. It's the faithful struggle. It's the faithful struggle. I think sometimes we, we tend to think that Christianity is modeling perfection for everybody else. You know, we feel the pressure to put that, put that face on or put that show on, but that's simply not the truth, you know. It's not easy, this life. It's not easy, the Christian walk. And so knowing how to struggle forward faithfully and to model that for each other, that is a fruit of the gospel. You know, guarding what you allow in your head and in your heart, guarding yourself, that is fruit. That is fruit. Serving the Lord with our God-given gifts. And even the gifts that we have are fruit from the Lord. Having integrity and consistency and character. Being the same person in front of everybody else that we are when we're by ourselves. That is a fruit of knowing Christ and walking in the light. Honoring your parents. Honoring your parents. That is fruit. Working diligently. Working hard. And ethically, not cutting corners, not working hard and faithfully when the boss is around and then changing our ethic when the boss is not around. And working as though we were working for Christ himself. That is fruit. Treatment of your employees. If you're a boss, if you're a company owner, that is fruit. Treating them well, honoring them, blessing them. Sharing your faith with other people. That is fruit. You know, treatment of your spouse, husbands, how you treat your wives, wives, how you treat your husband, parents, how you treat your children. That is fruit. And Jesus is committed to making us fruitful in him. Amen. Praise God for that. He is committed and he is more than enough to make our lives fruitful for God. More than enough to make our lives fruitful for God. And that is the title of this message. And with that, let's get into it. Verses 1 and 2. This is Paul's standard greeting to, to uh, the churches in all his letters. So here we go. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we see that Paul is the author, and Timothy is there with him in Rome from where he is writing under house arrest. Timothy is not the co-author of this letter, but he is a, a companion of Paul, and it's typical for Paul to include folks that are with him in his introductions so often. And Paul begins this letter in a very standard ancient practice. He starts by telling you who's writing the letter. We don't do that. We put our names at the very end, but it wasn't that way then. Notice with me that Paul asserts his apostolic authority because this is a serious letter. He intends to set the record straight in the church on who Jesus Christ really is and how he's more than enough. And so Paul lets them know that this letter is coming with authority. He also states that this authority was by the will of God. And so it was a sovereign appointment, a sovereign appointment. 
you know what, I praise God for that. You know, Paul was Saul, we know the story. He was not in any way really pursuing Christ. He, he hated Christ and he hated Christians and he was fighting against the church with all his might. But God intervened. God stepped in and God imposed his will on Saul that day. God asserted his will on Saul. And we know the story. Saul turned to Christ in faith and he began to serve faithfully. You know, and I, I do not mean any offense here, so please, you know, just give me some grace. But I would like to dispel with the notion that God is a gentleman. If you've ever heard that kind of language before, I remember my pastor's wife in Tennessee said, Rob, God is a gentleman and he won't impose his will on you. I'm sorry, and I've even been, I've said it myself, you know, and that sounds real good and it's, you know, I, I get it, but the reality is, God is sovereign, God is in control, and God is willing and able to step in and have his way. God will have his way. And I don't know about you, that's what I want. I wish God would do that even more. I want God to just have his way in my life. Amen? I mean, make my life a whole lot easier, I'll tell you that. And so Paul points out he is an apostle, and it was God's doing. God stepped in, God got a hold of Paul and made him who he was in grace. The recipients of this letter are the Christians there in Colossae. And we know that one of the, one of the gatherings, one of the churches there in Colossae actually happened in Philemon's house. Philemon is one of the letters that we have in the New Testament. And Archippus, Philemon's son, is actually one of the pastors there in Colossae and, and uh, his name will be stated later on in the book. And he is writing to those who are saints and faithful. And that's important for us to note. These are the same people. There aren't this one category of people who are saints and then this other category who are the faithful brothers and sisters. We need to dispel uh, that, that notion, get rid of that, because they are one. We are saints. If you are in Christ... You are a saint according to the Bible. Now that might sound weird to many of us because perhaps we've been in other uh, religions where they would say that the saints are really the elevated, high and lifted up holy people and the rest of us are ain'ts. You know, and quite frankly, most of the time we probably feel like ain'ts. But the Bible says that if you are in Christ, you are set apart. You are God's beloved, God's chosen in Christ and you are a saint. You are holy in him and faithful, called to be faithful. We'll talk more about that a little more as we get into the text. Notice with me that he addresses this to the brethren. That word is actually Adelphos, but here it's Adelphoi. It's, it's a plural form, and it speaks of siblings. So it's, it's more literally brothers and sisters. It's important to note that. When Paul addressed the church there in Colossae, he was talking to everyone, the faithful saints, brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is a very common greeting in that time, grace and peace, grace and peace. Grace was a very common Greek greeting, the word charis, and that's kind of like how we would say hello. They would say grace. And peace, shalom, was a very common Hebrew greeting. And so this would be a very typical greeting of Paul in, in all of his letters, most of his letters. But to the Christian, to the Christian, it is so much more than just a greeting. God's grace, God's peace, 
That is the beginning of everything. That is everything. It's all God's grace. And so it's a, fit, a fitting introduction here. Everything that, that we have in Christ, everything that Christ does in our lives, it's His grace. Amen? Any fruitfulness that we have or that is produced in our life is God's grace. It all starts there. That is the foundation. We realize that we were saved by God's grace. And every other blessing that we have enjoyed since then has been God's grace, purely God's grace. Every kindness that you have received from God was purchased for you at the cross. I mean, think about that. That's pretty amazing. It was purchased for us by the blood of Jesus Christ. Every goodness, every kindness that we have ever or ever will enjoy from God the Father, any fruit. And it's going to always be grace. It's going to always be grace. What is grace? You know, grace is God's kindness to an undeserving people. It is God's goodness. It is God's gift to a people who do not deserve it because God himself is gracious. He is good. He is loving. He is kind. And so all of that flows to a people who do not deserve it. It's not something that we could ever earn or pay for. It is God's free gift. And it is ours in Christ Jesus. That is the grace of God. We never stop needing God's grace. And God never stops giving His grace. Amen? Amen. I praise Him for that. You know, we, we tend towards somehow thinking we've got this now. God, I needed grace in the beginning. Thank you for getting me started on the road, but I'll take it from here. That is, that is the fight that is ever before us. That is the trap that we fall into. But the reality is I need grace now more than I have ever needed. And that's not just some kind of platitude. That is the truth. You know, I know more now about God. I know better now, yet I still fall. I still struggle. I still fumble. Praise God that His grace is there. Where sin abounds, grace super abounds. And it's amazing how subtly legalism can begin to creep in how we forget about God's grace. And I'll just give you a, a, an illustration from my own life as a pastor. You know, we put a lot of hours into studying for, for a sermon, typically. Most pastors do. And there are times when things happen in ministry and in life, and, and maybe you're not able to study as much as you would have liked to or, or wish that you could have. Now it's time to preach and you think, well, now God's not going to bless my sermon because I didn't work as hard on it. I didn't put as much into it. And that kind of thinking can creep in. And what that suggests is, is had I studied all of those hours, God would owe me a blessing. God would bless my sermon now because I've worked hard. I've worked for it. But since something happened and I couldn't, no blessing from God. You see how that can creep in? That's expecting something from God because I put in the work. And that can really creep into all areas of our life. You know, Chuck Smith once said that it's because of the grace of God that I expect to be blessed all the time. Now, to be honest with you, I, I kind of cringed when I heard that statement. But, I, you know, the reality is, is that oftentimes we expect God's blessing because of our, our works or our behavior, you know, we say, God, we did this, this, and this. We expect blessing. That is something to cringe at. That is something to, uh, to you know, 
frankly feel quite embarrassed about. But I think what he was really saying was, is I anticipate blessing because God is gracious. He wasn't saying that I demand or expect blessing. He was simply saying, I know that there are blessings in my life and that there are more to come because God is a gracious God. And it's not because I deserve it. It's not because I work for it or earn it. It's because that's the God that we love and serve. Praise God for His grace. And it's because of grace that we can expect to be fruitful for Christ. And, you know, that's grace. I had a pastor tell me one time that we are saved by grace, and quite frankly, even our service to God is by grace. It's all grace. It's all grace. And because of that grace, we have peace. Paul says, grace and peace. You can't have the peace without the grace. Because of the grace of God, we now have the peace of God. And that, that shalom, I mentioned that word already, that is when all things are as they ought to be, that kind of peace. I don't know about you, but I need more of that in my life. When things are as they ought to be. And that's the way it is when we're restored to God, when we are made right with our Creator, and when He is in control of our lives. We can have that kind of peace. You know, outside of Christ, there was no peace. There was only chaos in my life. Maybe you can relate with that. Maybe you can remember that time. Maybe somebody here today is still in that place. You know, there were periodic bursts of fear about my condition before God. I knew that I was outside of God's blessing, that I was separated from God, and that I was in big trouble. Frankly, even that was the grace of God. When, when I would have those realizations, that's not natural. That is the grace of God. But when you receive God's grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and you trust Him, there is this peace, this unexplainable, super abundant peace that comes. And that, my friends, is a recipe for fruitfulness in Christ. So it all begins with God's grace and peace. And that brings us to the second point here in our text. This is verses 3 through 8. So we saw Paul's greeting of grace to the church. Now we're going to see Paul's thanks to God for the fruitfulness of the gospel. Paul gives thanks to God here because the gospel was bearing fruit in the midst of the Colossian church. And so under heading two, if you're taking notes, there's going to be three subpoints. A, we're going to see the effect of the gospel. The effect of the gospel. And that is the fruit of faith, love, and hope. So verse 3. We give thanks to the, uh, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. So there are three things here that result from their belief in the gospel, three things that Paul thanks God for. And notice with me that he thanks God for these things, first and foremost. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. This is the right order. Paul recognizes that anything good here is a gift from God, and he praises God for it. And the first thing that he thanks God for is faith. 
that they had faith in Christ Jesus. Paul thanked God for giving them the faith to believe. You know, when they heard the gospel, they did not reject it. They believed it. They believed the gospel. Have you believed the gospel of Jesus Christ? That we are sinners, that we are, are separated from God, and that we're guilty and that we know it. You know, I didn't have to be convinced that I was a bad person and I did bad things. I knew that I was separated from a holy God and that I needed His forgiveness. But then when you know that His forgiveness is available to you, if you would turn from your sin and, and look to Christ Jesus, who, who lived the life that we could not live, a perfect life, He kept God's law in every way. And then this innocent one died the death that He didn't deserve, but we deserved. He died that death in our place, and He took God's wrath on Himself there on the cross, so that if we would believe that Jesus Christ is who he says that he is, and that he did what he said that he did, that he died for our sin and he rose again from the grave three days later. If we believe that, if we trust that, we would have salvation, that we would have forgiveness in Christ, and God would be our Father, no longer a judge, no longer the one to whom we have to give an account for our sin, for our sin was washed away forever by the, the cross, that is the gospel. That is the good news. And he said, when I preached that to you, you believed it. You believed the gospel. That was a gift of God. But you know, it doesn't end there. That's just the beginning, folks. That is the beginning point. That faith in the gospel, that trust in Christ, that led to, number two, love for the saints. That led to hearts overflowing with love. A deep and abiding love for the body of Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. That's amazing. Think about that. We know that we have gone from darkness to light. We know that we have passed from death to life because of our love for one another. That's what the Bible says. That's amazing. You know, if we really believe, hear me now, if we really believe that we are the body of Christ, that we are Christ's body here on this earth and Christ is the head, that's really going to affect the way that we interact with each other. That's really going to affect the way that we see each other. The closest thing you're going to experience to Christ personally and physically on this earth is fellowship with each other. I mean, think about that. That's amazing. We are the body of Christ. And there is this love, this deep abiding love that we have one for another because we have believed the gospel. We have faith in Christ and love for one another. You know, I've heard my share of people bashing the church throughout the years. Some non-Christians and some Christians, quite frankly. And you'll hear things like, if you want me to believe in your Redeemer, you're going to have to look a lot more redeemed. Or I like Jesus, but I can't stand his people. And that stuff's clever. It's cute. I, I get it, you know. And I'm not going to deny that plenty of people have misrepresented Christ and brought reproach on his name, you know. We are people, you know. The best of men are men at best. And we fall short. And we fail. But Jesus loves his church. You have to know that. 
Jesus loves his church. The church is his bride. The Bible says that the church is the bride of Christ and that he gave himself for her. He gave his life for his bride and that one day he's going to present her faultless before the Father in glory. And so we got to be real careful how we talk about the church of our Lord and how we treat each other because we're the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And that is a fruit of believing the gospel. Another fruit is hope. So we have faith, love, and hope. And we know that this hope, which is laid up in heaven, that's a confidence. It's a confidence of what lies ahead for us. See, we didn't have that outside of Christ. We didn't have confidence. We didn't have assurance in Him. We had uncertainty. We had fear. We had questions. We had dread. You name it. It wasn't good. But true hope is founded in the gospel, and it belongs to those who have trusted Christ. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is our hope. He's our living hope. He is alive forevermore. He rose from the grave, and He is seated at the right hand of the Father right now praying for us. And that is our hope. That is our hope in this life and for the next. Hebrews 6.19 says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Our hope in Christ and what He has accomplished for us and what awaits us in heaven is the anchor of our souls. Amen? That is the anchor. Hope gives us the ability to endure in this life. Hope gives us the ability to stay the course and to press on in this life because we know what waits in the next. Hope gives us the ability to sacrifice in this life, to forego certain things for the bigger, for the greater good, for the gospel, for what awaits us in heaven. We can lay our lives down. We can take up our cross. We can die to our own selfish desires and passions and pursuits and goals and dedicate ourselves to Christ and to his service and to his plan and his will for our lives here and now knowing that what awaits us in heaven, and frankly in this life, it's really not a trade. It's really not to put aside our desires for what Christ has for us. There's no comparison there. But see, hope gives us the ability to do that. And that is a fruit of believing the gospel. Faith, hope, love. And you see that frequently throughout the New Testament, those three combined together. So that brings us to the, the second sub-point here. So the first was the effect of the gospel is the fruit of faith, hope, and love. Faith, love, hope. The second, B, is the powerful spread of the gospel. The powerful spread of the gospel, deep and wide. Verse 6. The gospel which has come to you, as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit. Notice that. It's bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you, since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. God's goal for the gospel is to go deeper in the church and broader in the world. That's his goal, that we as Christians would understand the gospel in a greater way, that we would cherish the gospel. 
and that we would live our lives according to the gospel and that we would share and spread the gospel around the world. That is God's goal for the gospel. You know, Paul speaks of this gospel as though it were a force that permeates, and so it is. You know, Christ has been saving sinners and building his church for 2,000 years, and nothing has stopped it, and nothing will stop it. That is what Christ is doing. The church is what Christ is up to in this world. That is his plan. Christ is saving. Christ came to seek and to save the lost and to build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gospel is going deeper in the church and wider in the world. And you know, the amazing thing is the avenue through which that is accomplished. And that brings us to C, the channel through which the gospel flows. The channel through which the gospel flows is faithful fellow servants. So there's the fruit of the gospel, faith, hope, and love. And then... Excuse me. There's the powerful spread of the gospel deep and wide. And see, there is the channel through which the gospel flows, faithful fellow servants. That's us. Verse 7. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So God used a man named Epaphras to bring the gospel to Colossae in the first place. He was a fellow servant and a faithful minister. Remember when Paul was in Ephesus for three years on one of his missionary journeys? He never went to Colossae. But there was this guy Epaphras who most likely came to Ephesus and received the gospel from Paul. And he went back to Colossae and he planted this church here. He was the faithful minister. He was a fellow servant. And that's what God uses. God uses humble servants to share the most profound and glorious of truths. That is amazing. When you consider how big the gospel is, when you consider just how outside of time and space it is, that was God's plan from eternity past. And when you consider how much bigger that is than us or any little measly, puny thing we have going on in our lives, and yet God uses us, as the vessels through which the gospel would flow and spread, that is insane. That is amazing. And God uses humble servants to do that. Humble servants, faithfulness is what is expected, as we see in the text here. You know, the, the fellow servant there, it's a common word. It's, it's a, a bond servant. You know, the word servant there, doulos. It's a, it's a, a slave of Christ if you will. It's, it's someone who, is, who is, belongs to Christ wholly and completely and without any reservation. We are His. He is our King. He is our Lord. We are but humble and faithful servants. You know, I love 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. So Paul says, let us be considered servants of Christ. You know, the only place in the New Testament where this particular word is found, and the word means under rower. It's, it's uh, someone who would be at the bottom of the ship, a battleship, who has the rows. You ever seen the movie Ben-Hur? 
Maybe some of you have, some of you haven't. Well, that's an under rower, someone who is, who is, and oftentimes that was a death sentence uh, from Rome, and that was where a person was going to spend their dying days uh, in the bottom of a ship. Now, that's as low as it gets. That's it. You know, no rights, no privileges, no goals, no dreams, as it were. And so the idea there is that, man, we belong to Christ. He is our reason for living, and we exist to serve Him, and it's a glorious thing. It's an awesome thing to be a servant of Christ and to be a steward of the mysteries of God. That is, to be entrusted with the gospel, brothers and sisters, the mysteries of Christ, the mysteries of God, the gospel message. We are stewards. That means it has been given to us, but it's not ours. And it's what we do with what has been entrusted to us. We are to preserve it, protect it, to love the gospel, to cherish the gospel, to embrace the gospel, and to share the gospel. And God uses faithful and humble servants to do just that. Isn't that amazing? We are the channel or the conduit through which this gospel flows. All right, and this brings us to our third point, and I'll try to move a little more quickly through this. Point three, this is Paul's prayer for the fruitfulness of the church. So first, Paul greeted the church, verses one through two, and then verses three through eight, he talked about the fruitfulness of the gospel there in their midst and around the world. And now, verses nine through 14, Paul is going to actually pray. He's going to pray for the fruitfulness of that church. And look, folks, this is just as relevant for us 2,000 years later. That's what's so amazing about this. This is a God-inspired prayer. I want you to think about that. The Bible says of itself that it is inspired, it is God-breathed, if you will. And so when you see prayers in the Bible, this is a Holy Spirit-inspired prayer. If you want to know how to pray, look at the prayers in the Bible. If you really want to prioritize what you pray for and how you pray, look at how they pray in the Bible. So I want you to pay close attention to this prayer of Paul here for the Christians. And frankly, I want you to recognize this is a prayer for us. This is Paul praying every mu every, just as much for us now as he was for that church there in that day. And so this is so very relevant to us as Christians here and now. And so what does he say in verse 9? For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So Paul says, for this reason. And what was that reason? It was because the gospel had gone forth and it was producing fruit. And it was, uh, you know, God was working in awesome ways in their midst and Paul found out about this. Paul had never been there. And so he said, from the day that we found out about this, the day that we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. That was his response. And he would pray that they would bear fruit and that they would do so more and more, that they would abound in fruitfulness. And that's, that was typical for Paul in, in a lot of his writings. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Verses 1 through 2 and 9 and 10, he says this, 
Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. More and more. That is, the, that is Paul's prayer. These good things that God is doing in your midst, that's great, but I want to see it increase. I want to see you grow. I want to see you produce more fruit. And that was Paul's prayer. He did not cease to pray with, for them to ask that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. And so I don't want us to miss the obvious thing here. Paul is praying for fruitfulness. Brothers and sisters, if we want to be fruitful for Christ, fruitful in Christ for God, we need to pray. We need to pray for each other. We need to pray for ourselves, quite frankly, but we need to pray. And Paul thanked God and Paul prayed to God for this very thing. So what is it that Paul prays for? That they would be filled that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. That's what we need, folks. And that's my prayer for us, that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. You know, oftentimes what we think when we hear that is, okay, God, what's your will for my life? You know, what's the next thing? And, and we can't move forward until we think that we've got this figured out. And what that produces is paralysis by analysis. I say that quite a bit, right? But the, the reality is, is that we just need to know what pleases the Lord. That is the knowledge of his will, and it's revealed for us in the scriptures through and through. What pleases God? Who is God? What's he like? What's he about? What displeases God? That we would be filled with that kind of knowledge. And then wisdom and spiritual understanding, all spiritual wisdom and understanding is the application of that knowledge. That's what wisdom is. It is the right application of knowledge. So we can have all kinds of knowledge, but not, not do anything with it, not live it out, not obey it. Wisdom is the application of the knowledge that we have. So Paul says, I want you to have knowledge, but I also want you to have the wisdom to walk it out. That's my prayer for you. So do we have that? That's, that's very much a part of a fruitful life in Christ. The knowledge of who God is, what God is about what God desires for us, what he delights in, what God hates, and then the wisdom to be able to walk in that. And then Paul prays that they would increase in the knowledge of God. Now verse 10, notice that it says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So this idea of walking... Uh, it's, it's just a, a way of saying how one conducts themselves, how they live their daily lives, which is why we'll often say, how's your walk with the Lord? You know, how are you living before God? How is your relationship with God? How are you conducting yourself in the Lord day to day? And he says, my prayer for you is that you would walk, that you would live, that you would conduct yourself as worthy of the Lord, worthy of the Lord. And what that means is, is to live consistently with your profession and the character of the one that you profess. So if you say you're a Christian, if that's your profession, you profess faith in Christ, then you ought to live in a way that actually 
matches up with that. You ought to live in a way that looks like the one that you profess to know and believe. So you are to walk in a manner that is consistent with Jesus Christ. That was Paul's prayer for the Christians there in Colossae. And he says, fully pleasing him, living for the pleasure of the Lord. You know, some people, some people are just natural at this. They just know that God is dancing over them in heaven. And as they walk through life, they're just rejoicing in the, in the pleasure of God. And I don't, a lot of people don't have that, I think, naturally. We, we struggle with feeling like God maybe is displeased with us or, or like what we're doing isn't really a delight to the Lord. And that, I think that's a fight for us. We have to correct that because the Bible says that if we're in Christ, God is pleased with us and He delights in us and that our lives are a sweet-smelling aroma. And I like that language. You know, when you smell barbecue, when you smell good food cooking, it's a delight, is it not? You, you know what I mean. You smell that and you're like, man, that is good. Well, that is what the Christian life is like to God. But you know what it is when you smell something that's disgusting, right? You know the face that you make, the expression? That is a displeasing life. Well, the Bible says that as a Christian, as one who has trusted Christ in faith and is walking worthily of the Lord, that it is a sweet-smelling aroma to God, that it, is, it brings the Father pleasure. And you know I. I often pray, God, I want to live with that sense. Would you give me this sense of your pleasure that as I am serving you, as I'm walking with you, that I, I can know that you're delighted? Uh, it's been a long time, I think, since I've mentioned this, but you know what it's like when no matter what you do for somebody, you know they'll never be pleased. You ever known anybody like that? Maybe, maybe we might be guilty of that. I don't know. But conversely, when you know that somebody is going to be so delighted you have a gift for them or maybe you want to you know wash the dishes for your wife or you do something and you know when they get home they're going to see that and they're just going to be so delighted and you get excited about that you have that feeling of anticipation i desire that before the lord you know i think that's what it's like to live a life pleasing to god that's what i think god would intend for us to walk in and so praying that for ourselves and for each other and then being fruitful in every good work. You know, fruit can be a tricky thing. You may not always see it. You may not always see the fruit of what you're doing for God. Or maybe you feel like you're not producing fruit. And you know, fruit can be, in, in another analogy, it can be seasonal, like, much like a farmer. You know, there are times when you're planting, when you're sowing, and you're waiting on the rain, and you're waiting for God to bring the increase, and you have to wait patiently, and you have to wait by faith. And there are struggles, and there are seasons of the Christian life where we feel like it's not very fruitful. But the reality is that to be a Christian is to be fruitful. In some way, shape, or form, there will be fruit in our lives in Christ. As I said, there are seasons of drought, no doubt, but there is fruit for the Christian you know, he says that you would be increasing in the knowledge of God, verse 10. It's an interesting word here for knowledge, and it means knowledge gained through firsthand relationship, contact knowledge, appropriate to firsthand experiential knowing. This is the kind of knowledge that comes from knowing God relationally, personally, intimately. It's not just knowing facts about God, it's actually being with God. In Acts chapter 4.13, the disciples were being persecuted and they had to stand before the religious rulers 
And they were so impressive with their speech and their actions that the religious rulers looked at them and said, it's, you know, these are uneducated, untrained men. I don't understand how this can be. But it says one thing that they knew was that they had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. And that makes all the difference, folks, if you're with Jesus. And God has so graciously reminded me that recently, just how important that is. That's everything. That's everything. You know, I am of no good to any of you out here if I am not with Jesus. If I'm not really fighting for that time to be with the Lord. I can study all I want to. I can read all the books about being a counselor and a theologian and a pastor and all of that. But frankly, if I'm not in the presence of the Lord, meeting with Him, being refreshed in His grace and feeding on His faithfulness, I'm nothing. I have nothing to give anybody. And that is just the plain truth, folks. We have to be with God. You've got to make that effort. If you want to be fruitful in Christ, you've got to make that time seriously. And so I've started um, memorizing Scripture again afresh and been working on it for a few weeks. In fact, right now the text I'm working on is from this chapter. And so chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, that's the text I'm working on. And I wanted to encourage you folks to join me in this. So each week as I teach a text, would you pick a Bible verse from the text and work on memorizing? Let's encourage one another in the Lord to do that to memorize the verse, to recite it to each other, to meditate on it. And that's just one of a few ways in which we can go about really pursuing Christ and trying to be with Him and be refreshed in His Word if we want to increase in the knowledge of God, if we truly want to be fruitful for Christ. Verse 11, it says that you would be strengthened with all might according to His glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. God would have us be grounded and solid in Him, not wavering, not faltering, not being blown away by every false teaching that comes through the church, but that we would be solid, that we would be strengthened, not by our strength, but by His glorious might. Amen? His glorious power. And not so that we can just be prideful about how strong we are. God would not have us be strengthened by His power and might so that we can walk around and say, look how strong I am. Look how stable I am. But He actually tells us for patience and long-suffering, for patience and long-suffering, that we would endure hardship and persevere with others in love and joy, not with bitterness and resentment. God would have us to be solid and stable in Him for the purpose of perseverance, endurance, with joy. To be joyful about it. And then verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. So we were disqualified. We know this. I was disqualified and so were you. There was no blessing from God in our lives, but God qualified us through His Son, Jesus Christ. He made us righteous, and He made us partakers of the inheritance of God's good gifts for us. And ultimately, folks, the inheritance for the saint is Christ Himself. Christ is our treasure. Christ is our inheritance. He is our prize. He is our reward. And God has qualified us to be partakers of that inheritance. I like how the ESV translates verse 13. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness 
and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Folks, we live in the domain of darkness. This world is the domain of darkness. And we were once captive to that domain. But we have been delivered from that, delivered from the powers of darkness, transferred out of that and brought into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And he did that by redeeming us, by purchasing us out of that slavery, out of that bondage, and purchasing for us the forgiveness of Jesus Christ by his blood. And then he says, giving thanks to the Father. Giving thanks to the Father who has done that for us. You know, living with gratitude, that is a fruit. That is a fruit that is befitting of all Christians. An ungrateful Christian is a contradiction in terms. Gratitude. Living with thanks before God the Father who has rescued us, who has redeemed us, who has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. And he did it by the blood of his own son at the cross. We should be the most thankful people in the world. So let's just close right there. Let's, let's thank, thank the Father together. Let me pray. Father, it's our desire to be fruitful. God, it's your desire that we would be fruitful. You didn't save us so that uh, we could just be saved and then kick back and do nothing for the rest of our lives. You saved us, God, and you intend on making us fruitful for your glory and using us for your purposes and for your glory. And God, it's the desire of, of us here who have trusted you to be fruitful, to have lives that actually look like who we profess to be followers of, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, would you have your way in us? Would you make us fruitful? Would you make us a fruitful church? And, Lord, I pray for, for those here today who don't know you in a saving way. There are some here who have not put their trust in Christ. And they know that if they were to die today, that they would be, they would be destined for wrath destined for a horrible place called hell, a place that none of us ever want to be, God. It's a place where we don't have to be because you and your infinite grace and mercy have made the way out. You have rescued us, Lord, through your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that they would trust Christ today, that they would call upon that name, the name above every other name, the only name under heaven through which we can be saved. Father, would you grant them that repentance? We love you, Lord, and we thank you, God. And by faith, we believe that you are producing fruit in our lives and that there is more to come. And we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.